Hello, I wanted to let you know that this Flotations Life to Tape podcast recording of the Girl Aviators visual audiobook is funded by viewer support. If you would like to help out as well, you can visit flotationsdonations.com where there are many ways you can help support Flotations and the Flotations Live to Tape and our sister sites. There you can find ways you can donate through PayPal, you can set up reoccurring subscriptions on PayPal or also on Patreon. There are many levels on Patreon on which you can support. And there is also an Amazon wish list that will help us with equipment uh, donations. And we also accept cryptocurrencies as well. If you're old school and you like to send uh, checks, we have our P.O. Box information also on that page at flotationsdonations.com. I want to thank everyone who has helped support this series so far, and I hope you help too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Flotations Life to Tape podcast. We are reading The Girl Aviators, Motor Butterfly. Chapter 22, Peggy, Peggy's Generosity. Oh Peggy, it's the proudest moment of my life, cried Chimsy, as a shouting, excited crowd surrounded the airplane, in which Peggy still sat, feeling dazed and a little dizzy. Oh, you wonderful girl, cried out Bess, half laughing, half crying. Gracious, what an exciting finish. I thought I'd go wild when it looked as if you weren't going to win. They helped her from the airplane while policemen pushed back the crowd. Somebody brought in a tray with steaming hot tea and crackers on it, but Peggy could not eat. She felt faint and dreamy. Brace up, urged Chimsy. It'll be all right in a minute. It's the strain of those last few minutes. I thought I'd win. I thought I'd never win. And I never doubted it, declared Jessie stoutly. I wonder where Roy is, asked Peggy anxiously, as they entered a box in the grandstand where they could be secluded from the shoving and curious, staring crowd. Don't know, but he's all right. Depends on it, said Jimsy cheerfully. Hello, what's that coming now? It's a homing aeroplane. Then a minute later, it's Roy, look at him come. I don't think the Red Dragon could go that fast. Roy it was, sure enough. He was coming at a pace that might have landed him as winner of the race if he had not been delayed by his errand of mercy. Ten minutes later, he had joined them. First, he explained what had happened to the judges of the course. Kelly crestfallen and wretched look- Kelly crestfallen and wretched looking thankful him half-heartedly for what he had done and said that he would care for Speedwell till he got better which by the way was promise that he did not was a promise that he did not perform a sudden stir in the crowd caused the little party in the box to look up a man was hastily chalking up some legend on the big black bulletin board thus it ran long distant race for a five hundred dollar prize start of flight eleven minutes one second finish of flight twelve minutes two seconds maximum height one thousand five hundred feet Wind velocity 10 miles from the southeast. The winner, the golden butterfly. Winning aviator, Miss Margaret Prescott. What a cheer went up when it seemed as if the roof would be raised off the grandstand by it. It's just like a dream, cried Peggy. Just like a dream. Now don't be fainty, Peggy, or Miss Margaret Prescott, astonished Jess. As Jimmy says, brace up, the best is yet to come. A man came up where they were sitting in his hand. He had a slip of pink paper. Roy reached for it, but the man said that he had instructions to hand it only to Peggy. It's the check for the prize-winning money, he explained. Peggy took 
it and sat gazed and gazed at it for a minute. Oh, Piggy, what are you going to do with it? asked Bess. Buy some dress or hats. None of those things, said Piggy. I've made up my mind before I went into the race as to what I would do with the money if I won. And what is that? asked Miss Prescott. Why, it must go towards the Wren's education, rejoined the girl. Oh, Peggy, you darling, cried Jess, flinging her arms around her chum in full view of the grandstand and the crowd below. As for the Wren, she gazed up at the girl with wide-open brown eyes. You are too good to me, too good, she said simply, but there was a plaintive quiver in her voice. Mr. James Parker sat on the porch of his home in the foothills of the Big Smokies, gazing out over the landscape. Seemingly, he watched for something. He done watched the sky, and he expected about damn clean out of it pretty soon, said Uncle Jupe in his factorum to his wife Mandy. Go on, you fool. I don't know that flying boy and gals is be here today. Oh, that's a joke, that is, joined Uncle Jupe. How are they all going to fly to know? I don't know what's that Mars Parker says. They's been greasily imposed upon somebody. Ain't like that Lord had meant to fly. He had gave us wings. Go long, dust flying round her. You get at ho.corn. Look at liberty now. You got done dinner, dear. Be trouble. Uncle Jupe shoved out of the kitchen, but in a minute he came rushing back. What demanded? demanded his wife, noticing his wildly staring eyes and open mouth. You've gone fool crazy? It's true, it's true, gasped Uncle Jute. What's true, did you all say? Yes, no, about the flying things. Day's coming. Come look with your own eyes. Mandy shuffled out. Sure enough, there was coming toward them a flock of what at first sight appeared to be immense birds, but it was the young sky cruiser nearing their destination. On the porch, Miss Parker stood up and waved his newspaper. Ten minutes later, the airplanes came to earth in a smooth front lawn, while Uncle Jupe restraining a strong inclination to run away. They ain't king them things, he declared. If the Lord wants to fly, he would have given us wings, I guess. Yes, well, he sure had given them wings as angels, he repeated musingly. Chapter 23 The Moon Shiners and the Airplane this beautiful country, sis. Yes, indeed, agreed Peggy warmly. The two were flying high above the romantic scenery of the big smoke mountains of North Carolina in the golden butterfly. Beneath them lay a wild-looking expanse of country, deep peak canyons and cliffs heavily wooded, and here and there bare patches cropping out. Let's drop down to one of those patches and do some exploring, suggested Peggy. All right, agreed Roy, nothing loath. The golden butterfly was heading downward. In a few minutes, they landed on a smooth spot surrounded by trees. Leaving the airplane, they struck off a path through the woods. Wonder if we can find some huckleberry whereabouts, suggested Roy. Oh, yes, lots. Wouldn't it be dandy to take home a bucket full by airplane? There's a little hut off yonder. Maybe we could get a bucket or something there. Let's see if there are any berries first, said practical Peggy. From out of the hut shuffled an old woman, and she was wrinkled and a hideous old hag, brown as seasoned merchum pipe, and in her mouth was a reeking corn cob. Her feet were bare, and altogether she was the most repulsive old stone. She saw Roy and Peggy, and almost as soon as they saw her, for an instant she stood looking at them, and raised her voice in a sort of shrill shriek. Instantly from the words, several men appeared, 
wild-looking bearded fellows, each whom carried a rifle. What's all you want here? demanded one who seemed to be the leader. We're just taking a walk, explained Roy. Well, we don't like strangers particular. So it would seem, rejoined Roy, with a bold voice, although his heart was beating rather fast. How'd you get here? the question from the Inquisitor. We flew here, rejoined Roy truthfully. But that man's face grew dark with wrath. Don't you lie to me. It ain't healthy, he said. I'm not in the habit of doing so. But you said you flew here. Yes, we did. Here, young stranger, tell me the truth. How about you came by the internal? I'll make it hotter for you. I can only show you that I am speaking nothing but truth, rejoined the boy. If you come with me, I'll show you what we flew here in. The man glanced at him suspiciously. It was plain that he feared a trap of some sort. His eyes were wild and shifty as a wolf. Ain't you from government? he asked. No, I don't just know what you mean. They're just more dumb lying. Thank you. Don't get sassy, young fellow. It don't do you no good, but I'll come with you. Come on, boys, we'll take a look at this flying thing. I reckon that even if it's a trap, there's enough of us to take care of a pack of them. That's right, Jib, agreed the men. Some of them, who had been hanging back in the bushes, now came forward. They were all wild-looking as their leader, Jeb. The old woman mumbled and talked to herself as they strode off behind Roy and Peggy. It was one of the strangest adventures of their lives, and neither of them could hit on any explanation of the hillman's conduct. It did not take long to reach the airplane, and Roy turned triumphantly to Jeb. Well, he said, what do you think now? Well, it ain't flying, is it? Of course not, but I can make it. You can? Certainly. Flaps its wings and all like a bird? No, it doesn't flap its wings. Then how would it fly? Repounded Jeb. A murmur of pr approval ran through the throng. Logic appeared to their primitive intellects. Nothing can't fly that doesn't flap its wings, said one of them. But it, if it didn't fly, how in tarnation did it get here? Asked an old woman with a gizzard beard, with a grizzled beard and blackened stump of teeth projecting sunken gums. It appeared to be a pro proser, even Jeb. He had nothing to say. If you like, I can give you a ride in it, offered Roy to Jeb. All right, no monkey tricks now. What do you mean? In, co in course, I know it won't fly, but if it does, you'll have to let me out. With the sarc sage remark, Jeb stepped gingerly into the chassis of the airplane. He sat down where he was told to, and Roy took the world wheel. Jeb's companions gazed in awe and silence. Look out, Jeb, cried one. Don't hit the sky, yelled another. Bring me back a star, howled the facious old man. Me a bit of the moon, called another. Jeb said nothing to this raillery. Instead, he looked uneasy about him and held his rifle, which he had insisted on bringing with him between his knees. All right, asked Roy, looking back at him. All right. As right as I'll ever be, rejoined Jib, with a rather silky grin. You must hold tight, warned Preggy. I'm doing that, said Jib. And then, with the same sickly grin, say, miss, does it really fly? Of course it does, as the old man said. How could it have gotten here if it didn't? I guess I'd better go home and get my coat, said Jib, trying to climb out. His demeanor had completely changed since he had climbed into the chassis. Something in its well-cushioned seat and sight of powerful engine and propeller seemed to have changed his minds about the capi the capabilities of the golden butterfly. But it was too late. With a roar, the engine started, 
Instantly, the little plateau was deserted. The mountaineers were all behind trees. Jeb rushed for the side of the car. Sit down, screeched Peggy, really fearing he would fall over. But if Jeb's intention had been to climb out of, climb out was foiled. Wow, he yelled again. Wow, let me out. Too late now, shouted Roy. The aeroplane shot up, upward, carrying the passenger, a man temporarily crazed from fright. Suddenly, Roy felt the muzzle of a rifle pressed against the back of his neck. Take me back to earth or I'll shoot, said the voice in his ear. Roy obeyed, and so ended Jeb's first airplane ride. It may have added to that it was also his last. Chapter, 20, chapter 24 Mr. Parker's Story It was a gang of moonshiners that you stumbled across, said Mr. Parker, when they told him of their adventure. You were fortunate to escape as you did. I guess we have that airplane ride we gave to Jeb to thank for that, laughed Roy. It wasn't so laughable, though, when he pressed that rifle to your neck, declared Peggy. No, indeed, that was a mighty uncomfortable feeling, I can tell you. It reminds me of an experience I had with a moonshiner once, said Mr. Parker. Would you care to hear about it? Of course they would. They were sitting on the porch in the twilight after dinner. It was a happy group, and they had been exploiting, exploding with laughter over Roy's account of Jeb's ride. It was a good many years ago when I was in the employee of the government, said Mr. Parker, that I am going to tell you about what happened. I was a young fellow then, and a good bit of a daredevil, so I was sent at the head of a body of men to rout out moonshiners. As you may know from your existence this morning, it is a mighty dangerous to be suspected of being an employee of the government, and so we posed as drummers and peddlers, scattering through the mountains. Each of us worked alone so as not to attract attention. Our job was merely to locate the illicit stills, and then militia would be sent in to raid and destroy them. The vile stuff and the vile stuff they concoct. I can... I had been on the job for about a week when I came one night to a desolate-looking little shack on the high mountainside. It did not look inviting, but it had, but it had, have, but had to have shelter for the night. So I stepped to the door and knocked. A rather comely-looking woman replied to my summons. "I'm a peddler," I explained. "Could I get something to eat and a room here for the night?" She looked at me twice before answering. What are you trading in? she asked with a trace of suspicion. I judged from her manner that there was an illicit still in the neighborhood, and that was made her so suspicious. Oh, laces, ribbles, ribbons, and so forth, I replied. I showed her some samples. I'll give you breakfast, supper, and a bed for a bit of red ribbon, she said. I'll throw in this bit of blue, I said gallantly. And so the bargain was struck, and was a small place but neat and tidy. Two children were playing about in the corner, sat a man trying to read a month-old newspaper. Pop, this fellow traded these bits of ribbon and beds for two meals, she said, proudly exhibiting her goods, and evidently thinking she had made an excellent bargain. I could see the gleam of triumph in her eye. Humph, granted the man. Much good those are. Then he turned to me. Peddler, he asked. Yes, I am. What are you trading in? Oh, silks, laces, and so forth, I rejoined. I repeated my formula. Humph. He looked at me, narrowing his eyes. You don't look much like a peddler, said he. No, I've seen better days, I said with a sigh. 
but I could see that he was still suspicious. Where'd you come from? was the next question. South, said I. Where are you going? North. Ain't much of a conversation be here, he asked. No, I'm not considered to be a very talkative fellow, I rejoined. We lapsed into silence. The man stoked. The man smoked. I sat with the thought of the situation over. At last supper was announced. It was eaten almost in silence. The man discouraged all his wife's efforts at conversation. He was sullen and nervous. More than ever, I did begin to suspect that there was still in the immediate neighborhood. Soon after supper, I pleaded fatigue and was shown up a flight of stairs, or rather a ladder, to some sort of attic. There was a husk mattress there and a pile of rather dirty-looking blankets, but in those hills you learn to put up with what you can get. I was glad to have found another shelter at all, but tired as I was for some reason, I couldn't sleep. I felt a sort of vague uneasiness. I heard the man get up and go out, and then later on I heard several voices downstairs. There was a broad chink on the floor, and though these I could look down, the men were four of them, were talking in low voices, but now then I could catch a word. All of a sudden, I heard one say something about government spy. That gave me a shock, I can tell you. I knew they were talking about me. My predicament had was a bad one, if they suspected me. I began to look about me for a way to get out. While doing this, I occasionally looked down below. The last time I looked, I got a shock that made my hair stand. The fellows were moving about the room. From one corner of them got a formidable-looking life. Scared to death, I redoubled my efforts to find a way out. At last, one, at last, at one end of the room, I found a chimney, one of those big stone affairs, as big as all outdoors. I decided to try this. I found that it was rough inside, and had I not much, and I had not much difficulty in clambering up it. I was near the top when I heard a voice from the room say below, Then we ain't kill him right then we unskill him right now. Yes, he's lived long enough. He's no good. My heart jumped to my stomach, and I redoubled my efforts and emerged from the top of the chimney. Reaching it I lowered myself to the roof as gently as possible. Then eaves came down low to the ground, and I had not much difficulty in making my escape noiselessly. Chapter 25. The Wren Disappears But as I reached the ground and startled things happened, I missed my footing and found myself rolling down the steepish bank. At the bottom I fetched up against an odd-looking little hut, almost overgrown with bushes. It was bright moonlight and the door was open. Inside was a fire, and by its light I could see that the place was empty of human life, but that collection of objects already familiar to me almost filled it. It was an illicit still. Clear enough, also it operated by my hosts up above. I was listening for sounds of pursuit, but heard none. Possibly they had not yet crept into my room to perform their horrible resolve. Suddenly the silence was broken by an appalling yells and screams. My hair bristled for an instant, and then I burst into a laugh. It was a pig that I heard. At the same instant it drawed on me that the pig they had been discussing dispatched, and not me at all. You can imagine my revulsion of my feelings, but I felt sore at the scare they had given me, so I decided to do some work for the government and even the scores up at the same time. Entering the shack, I scattered the coals 
of the fire right and left. Then I came away. No, I did not go back to the cabin. It would, as your friend Jeb said, not have been healthy for me. Instead, I set off running at top speed through the woods. Before long, I saw the glow on the sky. Behind me, I knew the flames were devouring the vile stuff that moonshiners make. I left my pack behind me, however, and I hope that compensated them for the lost over their still, but I am sure the woman, at any rate, would value its contents more highly. They all burst into a laugh at the conclusion of Mr. Parker's odd story. They were still laughing when Mandy rushed out on the porch. Miss Wren be- done be gone, she shouted. Gone, they all echoed in dismayed tones. Yes, I done go to her room, and she, Poolam, is comfortable, and she not there. I done find this written too. Let me look at it, demanded Mr. Parker. It might hard, it might, it's mighty hard to read. It sure is a scan bit of writing. With this comment, the colored woman handed over her master a bit of dirty wrapping paper. On it was scrawled an almost illegible character. You won't get hurt again. The Romneys. The Romneys exclaimed, Peggy. Yes, that's the gypsy word for themselves, said Mr. Parker. I'm afraid the same band that had her before has stolen her again. What are we to do, wailed Bess. Hush, said Jess. Let Mr. Parker decide what is best. They stood about in dismayed faces. Miss Prescott was weeping softly. Peggy could hardly keep her, back her tears, and the little brown wren had become very dear to them all. It was a hard blow indeed to lose her like this. But how could they know that she was there, objected Jimsy. Why, that silly newspaper report that went out when you arrived here about your adventures on the way and the romantic rescue of Wren, if they had come across that, it would have given them a clue. They were traveling south then, Wren said, and that was two weeks ago. Then they would have had ample time to reach this vicinity. That is so, rejoined Mr. Parker solemnly. I am tele- I'll make telephonic inquiries at once. They may have been seen in the vicinity. While you are doing that, we'll examine the room. They may have a clue there, said Roy. Roy and Jimsy darted upstairs on this errand. On looking around the place, it was clear enough how the abductors had gotten in. Outside the window was an extension roof, and it would have been very easy for an active man such as a gypsy usually are to have clambered in and out again without detection. Taking the lantern, they examined the ground outside. On a flower bed below the roof was an imprint of a man's foot, of man's feet. Notice anything particular about it? asked Jimsy, for Roy was bending earnestly over the prince. Yes, I do know that footprint again anywhere, he said. See one side of the man's boot and the broaden of the right foot? His toes show there on the ground. That might be a good clue if it was daylight, but right now, Jimsy sighed, it was manifestly impossible to do any tracking of the man with a broken boot in darkness. We'll have to wait till daylight. Yes, brother, it all. They may be miles away by that time. I doubt it. I wouldn't wonder if they hide right around here. There are lots of good places, and they know that hue and cry will be so hot they might be caught if they travel. That's so. Maybe we can find them after all. Let's hope so. We can do no more good here. Let's go in. Becky met them at the door. She seemed wildly excited over something. The male rider's just been here, she exclaimed, 
and listen to this later. It's from a woman living near New York. She just got back from Europe in an old newspaper she read on account of our sky cruise. She is certain that the wren is her daughter and gives a description of her that tallies in every particular. She said that the wren was caught out in a heavy thunderstorm and sought refuge in a gypsy camp as she leaned forward from a farmer who had seen her. She hunted high and low, but has never seen her since, and had had never since had a word of the child. Her name is Sylvia Harvey. Mrs. James Harvey is her mother, and she's rushing here as fast as the train will carry her. If it's really Sylvia Harvey, then her mother has found her only to lose her again, sighed Jess. Don't say that, said Mr. Parker, coming into the room at that moment. We'll leave no stone unturned to find her. Did you have any success in the telephone? No, nobody has seen a band of people answering to the description you gave of the Wren's abductors. Then we can do nothing more? The question came from Roy. Not tonight, but it would be useless. I have noticed all the police around, and a general alarm will be sent out at once. And now I have every other bed, and now I order everyone to bed. We have had hard work in front of us tomorrow. Chapter 26 Captured by Gypsies About noon the next day, Roy and Gypsy found themselves at the edge of a wild-looking section of country. They were standing at the entrance to Glen, densely wooded bank with dark, forbidding-looking trees, and walled by pre- by precarious and rugged rocks. Look at, look as if the trail ends here, said Jimsy consolingly. It sure does. We can't. Gee, Wilkins, what on earth is up now? It's the broken-toed boot. Look here, on the muddy bank of this little stream. By hooky it is. We've struck the trail instead of ending it. What will we do? Go back for reinforcements? Not just yet. We'll reconnoitre a bit. But the fellow went up this bank, and look here, Jimsy. There's a little footprint besides. He was dragging the child along. With beating hearts, the two boys entered the forbidding-looking glen. It was almost dark under the trees, which made the aspect of the place even more gloomy and desolate-looking. This is a nice, cheerful sort of place, said Jimsy, in a low tone as they walked along, following the bank of the stream, for the bush was too thick to admit they were walking anywhere else, which it was had driven the broken-booted man to leave the telltale trail behind him. I'd rather wish I had a gun, said Jimsy. We won't get close enough to them to need it, rejoined Roy. We'll just buy out their hiding place and then go back for reinforcements. That's the best idea. I don't much fancy a hand-to-hand encounter with a band of desperate ruffians, as those gypsies have shown themselves to be. Don't be scared. We won't have any trouble if we're careful. I'm not scared, but if we did get in a tussle with them, they would... They could easily overpower us, and then we'd have done more harm than good, for they'd take flight and move right off. That's my idea. We'll be cautious as mousing cats. Better stop talking then. I've never heard a mousing cat meow. Cautiously, they crept on. The trail still held good. At last, they reached the head of the glen, where a spring showed the source of the brook. What's next? whispered Jimsy. Let's see if we can find which way that fellow went. Round this spongy all over here. Ah, this way. See it? Jimsy nodded. They struck off to the right, 
clambering over the rocks till they reached the summit of a small hill. The tall dead tree stood there, and Jimsy volunteered to climb it in order to spy out the surrounding country for traces of gypsies. But on his return to the ground, he was compelled to admit that they had gained nothing. I thought I might see some smoke that would give me a clue to their whereabouts, he explained. Not much chance of their being as foolish as that, I guess. They know searching parties are out all over by this time, and they're too foxy to light fires. I might have thought of that, admitted Jimsy. It would be about the last thing they would do. What will we do now? I hardly know. Hello, there's an odd-looking place. Right over here. See that deep canyon? That's one with the fallen tree across it? Yes, I do now. Let's look over there. All right, you're on. The two boys snuck off in the direction of Roy's discovery. It was indeed an old freak of nature. Some convulsion of earth had detached quite a section of land from the surrounding country. It was in fact an island in the midst of the woods, with only a fallen tree for a bridge. Let's cross it and examine the place, suggested Roy, with all a boy's curiosity. Together they crossed the old tree, which had evidently fallen there by accident. Although in reality it had formed a perfect bridge, the island, that, which was thickly wooded, and then pushed forward across it without some difficulty. Suddenly they came upon a sight that made them halt dead in their tracks. A man holding a rifle was sitting on a fallen log. The instant he saw them, he raised his weapon. Don't come no further, he said. Why not, demanded Roy indignantly. See that sign, said the man. He pointed rudely at the painted sign on the tree on his back. Danger, no trespassing. And that was what it said in bold letters that sprawled across the surface in a untidy fashion. The execution of the thing was as bad as its spelling. I guess a pretty sick man painted that sign, Grim Jimsy. What do you mean, was the slurly reply. Why, I should judge he was having an awful bad spelling at the time, said the boy's rejoinder. The man scowled at him fiercely. No joking round here, he growled. Now then, if you know what's good for you, you too will vamoose. What's the danger if we keep on? asked Roy. Why, they're trying a new kind of explosive back there. It might go off the wrong way. Your way, for instance, and hurt you, was the reply. Seems funny sort of place for you to try out explosives, said Roy. Seems a queer sort of place for you two kids to come. Who are you, anyhow? We are camping down below, and we just came out for a stroll. We'll stroll some other place, then. Get away from here. We certainly will, flashback Roy. Come on, Jimsy. As there was seeming nothing else to do, Jimsy agreed, and they turned away and began retracing their steps, no wiser to the whereabouts of the man with the broken boot than they had when they set out. Just as they turned to go, however, another man came out of the woods behind the man with a rifle. When he saw the boys, he gave an abrupt start. Where did those boys come from, he demanded. I don't know, said they were two kids out camping and taking a stroll. Taking a stroll, eh, said the other furiously. They were taking a stroll looking for that rent. How do you know? Because they are the same two kids who stole her from us, just as we are going to demand a ransom for her. That was before I joined the band. No wonder I didn't know them. If I had, he scowled vindictively. Well, we can't let them get away. Here, give me that rifle, demanded the newcomer. The other handed it to him, and the next instant, a report rang out, and a bullet whizzed over the boy's head. Come back here, shouted the man who had fired the shot. I want to see you. The boys hesitated for a minute. The next shot will come lower if you don't 
warned the man. Come on, no nonsense. As there seemed to be nothing else to do, the boys obeyed. As they drew closer, they recognized the fellow. Oh, you know me, eh? He snarled. Well, you know me better before we get through. Follow me now, Pedro, and take the rifle and fall in behind. If they try to escape, shoot him down. Here was a fine situation. They had found the gypsies' camp with a vengeance, but for all the good it was going to do them. The rent, unless they could get away, they might as well not have come. The gloomy reflections shifted through their minds as they paced along, the man with the rifle occasionally prodding them with just with it just to make them steep lively, as he phrased it. At the length they came to a short of large open space shaped like a basin, and placed in the middle of the natural island, in this basin were set up several languid tents, about which the gypsies were squatting. They set up a yell of surprise as the two boys were brought in. Where under the sun did you find them? Bespo exclaimed the same woman who had so cruelly ill-treated the wren the time the boys rescued her. Oh, they were just taking a stroll and happened to stroll in here, said Pebble viciously. I guess they won't have a chance to bother us again. They're going to make quite a stay here. The gypsies set up a taunting laugh. Suddenly, one of the tents, a tiny figure, darted. Oh, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come, it cried. It was the poor little wren. She had been stripped of her nice clothes and put in some filthy rags. Her face was stained with crying, and there was a bruise on her forehead. With a curse, Bisbo seized the child by one arm, swung her around, and dealt with her a savage box on the ear. Get back where you belong, he roared. The next instant, Beppo had measured his length on the ground, and beneath one of his eyes, a beautiful plum-colored swelling was developing. As had been said, Roy could hit a powerful blow. Chapter 26 Deliverance The next minute was a wild confusion. The boys found themselves on the ground, being scratched and bitten and kicked by men and women alike. They did not have a chance against this horde of half-savage wanderers. At length beaten and bruised, they were tied with ropes and thrown into one of the tents, and a, mat set, a man set to guard it. All day they lay there without anything to eat or drink, and no one to come near them except the occasional tangled head that would thrust in to hurl some taunt at them. Darkness fell, and as they lay there suffering, terrible from pain of their wounds and bonds, in this uttermost limit, declared Roy in a low tone, we're in the worst fix we've ever gotten into this time. We certainly are. What a bit of bad luck that that rascal Pippo came up when he did. That other gypsy had no idea who we were. Well, I had the satisfaction of giving Master Beppo a good black eye, muttered Roy. Yes, that was a peach. It did me good to see it land. It landed all right. Ouch, my back feels as if it was broken. My wrists and ankles are awfully sore. I wonder if they mean to let us loose or give us anything to eat. Well, we won't last long at this rate. I guess they mean to be as cruel as they can be to us in return for that punch I get gave Pebbo. I wouldn't have spoken to you again if you hadn't. I didn't blame you. It grew dark. Outside, they heard the murmur of voices for a time, and then all became quiet. Just before silence fell, the snores began to be audible, and they heard a man on duty as their guard called from some coffee to keep by his side during the night. I'll send that brat of a wren to you with it directly, they heard Beppo's wife reply. 
this little beast, it will do her good to work. Then came the sound of a slap and a sob. The blood, the boy's blood boiled. Oh, what wouldn't I give to have Master Beppo and a twenty-four-hour foot ring, breathed Roy. I think he'd look well decorating a tree, grateful out of Jimsy's veracity. The night wore on, but the boys did not sleep. Their tight bond and worry over the situation prevented this. All at once Roy's attention was attracted by someone raising the flap at the back of the tent. The next something crawled in. At first he thought of it was a large duck, but then came a whisper. It's me, Wren. What are you doing here? Hush, I've come to set you free. You'll take me with you, won't you? Of course, what a question to ask, but how can you free us? I got a knife here. I'll cut the ropes in a minute. But the guard outside... I've fixed him. Was it very wrong of me? While Mother Peppo wasn't looking, I put some of that stuff in the coffee I brought him. Well, upon my word, Wren, what sort of stuff? gasped Jimsy. Oh, some of the brown stuff I've been, I've seen Mother Peppo smoke it. It makes her oh so sleepy. So I gave some of it to him, and he's sound asleep now. Must have been opium, declared Roy. Wren, do you know that you are... A very bad young lady? I'll do anything for you, so you're good and kind to me, said the child as she rapidly cut the ropes. For a time the boys, after being free, just laid there, unable to move, but after a while circulation set in and they began to move their limbs. In half an hour the trio crept out of the tent and, crossing the islands, traversed the trunk bridge. Wait a minute, said Roy, when they reached the other side. What are you going to do? Make that hole... Outfit of prisoners till the officers of the law can get up here. He took the broken branch as a lever, and with Jimmy's assistance, toppled along down into the canyon. Now I guess they'll have to stay put a while, he said. And they did. That was why when a posse came up to capture the band, they carried materials for building a bridge across the canyon. It may as well be said that the band received heavy sentences it being proven that their trial they had made a practice of kidnapping children and trying to collect ransoms for them. There was a happy scene the next day at Parker's home when Miss Harvey, a sweet-faced woman of middle age, arrived. After one look at the wren, she swayed and then recovered herself and called out in a voice that only a mother knows, Sylvia. Mother screamed the child and rushed into her open arms. The tide of memory driven by the low ebb and ill treatment of hardship had rushed back with full force the wren the gypsy waif was once more sylvia harvey the doctor said that such a case was frequent and following a severe shock it was then that they recalled how the child had almost recollected some of her past life during the thunderstorm the happiness of the little wren and her mother in their reunion was shared by all of the party who had been instrumental in effecting it for every one of them, including Jake, had become attached to the quiet little girl and rejoiced in her good fortune. When Mrs. Harvey and Sylvia departed for the railway station the following day, behind a pair of Mr. Parker's steady horses, they were accompanied by four aeroplanes, which hovered over them like so many sturdy guardian angels, and when the train bore them away, they watched the returning aero aerial escort until there was nothing visible but four tiny dots against the blue heaven oh mother exclaimed wren they look so no bigger than butterflies now 
and the girl aviator is flying every moment higher and farther on the powerful wings of the golden butterfly and the delicate plane of the dainty dart looked back at the train crawling like a humble insect in the valley below and gloried in their untenement flight as they followed roaring jimsy in an irregular possession through the air they thought through their thoughts flew ahead outdancing the biplane and the red dragon and speeding confidently towards the happy realization of the future mrs prescott watching from the home of mr parker for their return also dreamed dreams and saw visions and in her dear child were fulfillment filling the bright prophecies of the present she saw them stronger because of adversity bravery because of success and ennobled by all their experiences and she deemed herself happy in her capacity to capacity of chaperone to the girl aviators the end i want to thank you for uh, this for coming to this episode of the flirtations live today podcast we have finished this book uh i haven't decided what we'll do next uh but uh i'm playing with the idea of maybe doing another uh junior classics uh we'll see but i think everyone coming out I will see you next week. Bye-bye. Hello, I wanted to let you know that this Flirtations Life to Tape podcast recording of The Girl Aviator's visual audiobook is funded by viewer support. If you would like to help out as well, you can visit flirtationsdonations.com where there are many ways you can help support Flirtations and the Flirtations Live to Tape and our sister sites. There you can find ways you can donate through PayPal. You can set up reoccurring subscriptions on PayPal, or also on Patreon. There are many levels on Patreon on which you can support. And there is also an Amazon wish list that will help us with equipment uh, donations. And we also accept cryptocurrencies as well. If you're old school and you like to send uh, checks, we have our P.O. Box information also on that page at flotationsdonations.com. I want to thank everyone who has helped support this series so far, and I hope you help too. Thank you.